0: Take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel according to Luke. Our passage today comes from Luke chapter 9, verses 1 to 9. Luke chapter 9, verses 1 to 9. This morning we are looking at another uh, watershed moment, you might say, in the Gospel according to Luke. We have been, up to this point, tracing the incarnation of Christ, seeing the the beginning stages of his public ministry in the world. We've watched him go throughout Galilee, preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. Along the way, he has called uh, disciples to himself who have laid down everything uh, in order to follow him. Uh, Fishermen have dropped their nets, and they have followed the Lord Jesus Uh, Tax collectors, men like Levi, uh, have left their livelihoods behind, and they have followed after Jesus. And in the meantime, they've been being discipled by him all this time. They've listened to him teach. They've had uh, the, the, the washing of the water of the word pouring over their hearts and minds, Uh, Every moment that they have been with Christ, they've seen these tremendous displays of his power and his glory. Well, now we come to this key turning point where the Lord turns to them. He turns to his disciples and he says, the time has come for you to go out and to minister in my name. So with God's help, if you would give your attention to the reading of his word, Luke chapter nine, beginning in verse one. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had arisen. Herod said, "John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things?" And he sought to see him. Christ commissions his disciples; he grants them power from on high, saying, "You." are going to be my witnesses. He lays them under obligation to go out into the world preaching the kingdom of God as heralds of his name. If you could collapse everything that happens during the 40 days between Jesus' ascension and the day of Pentecost, you have a preview of that right here. It must have been quite a surprise to these men, uh, to these ordinary men, uh, to think that they were Christ's chosen instruments. That the promised Messiah, the one they had put their trust in, in all of his sinless perfection, in his infinite wisdom said, you Are going to be the ones to go out and make me known. And that's the first thing I want you to see here today the kind of people Christ uses. Five big headings we can hang our thoughts on as we look at this passage today. First, the kind of people Christ uses. We're dealing especially with apostles in this context, and that is an office that is no longer in operation in the church today. There is a distinction uh, to be made here. Back in chapter 6 and verse 12, you remember Jesus goes out to the mountain to pray, and he prays there all night he is there in prayer to God. When day breaks, he comes back. He calls his disciples together. And from the disciples, he chooses 12, whom the scripture says he names apostles. So there are disciples. There's that larger body. And then there are apostles chosen by the Lord Jesus from that number. they are men especially chosen by Christ. They weren't appointed by the church as you have elders in the church today. They're men who had seen the risen Christ. They played a special role in the formation of the early church along with uh, the prophets of old as the foundation upon which Christ is building his church today, the Lord Jesus himself being uh, the chief cornerstone. We are evidence of Christ's faithfulness to his promise. So, there is a distinction to be made. And at the same time, uh, there is great instruction and profound encouragement in this text as we look at the kind of men Jesus chooses, as we look at the kind of men Christ calls to himself and says, You are going to go out. They're ordinary. They're ordinary men. Brothers and sisters, they're just fishermen, they're tax collectors. They were not especially learned men. They are as underwhelming as the bunch of us. So by what standard were they qualified? By what standard were they qualified to go out on Christ's behalf? Jesus had called them. Jesus had called them. He had called them to himself in the same way he has called us. First, he had called them to put their trust in him. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. They follow me. They were men who had put their faith in him. They had submitted themselves to his lordship. I don't know if the phrase is still used anymore, but they were sold out. They were sold out to him. They had spent time with Christ. They were men who had been under His tutelage, they'd been discipled by the master. And now they're being sent out. They're being sent out to make disciples themselves. Church, that is the pattern. That is the pattern that you see clear through the end of Christ's ministry. When Jesus walked out of the empty tomb, the resurrected Christ, he appears to his trembling disciples And you remember how they're hiding behind lock and key on account of fear of the Jews. What were some of the very first words he speaks to them? As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So in the counsel of God's will, the Lord Jesus delights to take helpless sinners and turn them into enlisted agents in the kingdom of God. He takes helpless sinners, he turns them in to enlisted agents in his kingdom. That's the paradigm, brothers and sisters. It's a paradigm so basic to the teaching of the New Testament that it is, it's easy to forget It's so foundational, so fundamental to God's program of salvation, yet so uh, frequently overlooked. Christ comes to save, but he also pulls the saved into his mission to go and make disciples, to seek and save the lost, not in their own power, but as an extension of his power. 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ has reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting us with the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Church, this is how we are to conceive of our purpose in the world God making his appeal through us, through those that he has called for his own name's sake, for his own glory. He works through his people. Have you been reconciled to God? Have you been restored through the personal work of the Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father? If that is the case, you have been entrusted with the message of of reconciliation, with the ministry of reconciliation. Are you a recipient of the mercy of Christ? If you can say yes, amen to that, then let it be indelibly imprinted upon your heart and mind that your mission in life is to be a channel of his mercy. If you have received mercy, you are also a channel of mercy to the world. You are an instrument in the Redeemer's hand called to go forth in the name of God's Son. Now, I wonder whether that prospect strikes terror in your heart. I wonder whether you are overwhelmed at the thought that if you were honest, you might say, well, that actually does fill me with fear and trepidation. Christ has an answer for that. Number two, we see the power and authority of Christ. And we see him equipping his disciples with what they need. When Jesus sends his disciples out, he does not send them out into the world unarmed. He equips them. He gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And notice here, church, that it's his power, that they possess. It's nothing intrinsic to them. The text doesn't talk about their strength. It doesn't talk about their ability. Jesus isn't coming through the crowds. He is not looking for the most able-bodied men. This is not a, a, a kind of special ops team in the kingdom of God. On the contrary, who does he choose? He chooses the feeble. He chooses the weak. He chooses the frail to manifest his grace in the world. The Bible says that his power is made perfect in weakness. In weakness. So it's in his power that they go out, it's in his authority that they go out. It's his authority by which they are commissioned and sent out into the world. It's not something they take to themselves. Again, you see how this functions almost like a, a dress rehearsal for the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, go therefore. The Great Commission does not begin with go, therefore. It begins with all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, again, the particular context here deals especially with extraordinary, uh, special, apostolic exercise of Christ's power and his authority as they go about. You can see it in the text. They are exorcising demons. They're curing diseases. This is what Paul uh, describes as the true signs of of an apostle, signs and wonders and mighty works. But there is an application here for us. What is it? How does this shape the way we think? Well, Jesus has said that it is through the proclamation of the gospel he is going to build his church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He sends us, he sends his people out as representatives, to plunder the the domain of the devil. That's what the gates of hell represent. Gates are defensive measures. So in a way that parallels the apostles' ministry, we go out and we do encounter resistance. Uh, We do encounter Uh, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, Ephesians 6, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But just like the apostles, Christ has not left us unarmed. He has equipped us with power. He has equipped us for the battle. The power and authority of the very Son of God goes with us. What did Jesus encourage his disciples with? He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We do not go unarmed. So remember this as you are confronted with your weakness. Uh, Those of you who are going, uh, Lord willing, to Georgia in a couple months, remember this. You don't go unarmed. Those of you who think about your neighbors next door, the power of the risen Christ is with you. In fact, don't lose sight of your weakness as you go, but also remember the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We know, church, it's the power of the Spirit working through the op- open statement of the truth that unveils the glory of the Lord among those who are perishing, that brings souls to a saving knowledge of Christ that is our desire we want to see the lost come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and all of his saving power but we cannot make that happen only Christ can only the spirit of god working through the power of his word can can unveil the glory of Christ can lift that veil over the hearts of men It's not our cunning. It's not our skill set. It's not how winsome you are. It's not having the right turns of phrase. It's the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. And it has pleased God and the counsel of his will to choose you to be sent out in the strength of his might. Vessels for his glory. Disciples who go out and make disciples. Now, by what means are disciples to be made? Number three, look at verse two. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. That's number three, the proclamation of the gospel we see here. So the power and authority was not given to build uh, these men's petty uh, little kingdoms, uh, something for their own name's sake. It was for the kingdom of God. It was for the souls of men. What does it mean to proclaim the kingdom of God? Well, this is like shorthand for declaring the inbreaking of God's sovereign rule through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It means bringing into subjection every earthly power to the king. To the king of kings and the Lord of lords. How? How? through the obedience of faith. In Old Testament terms, it means declaring what Psalm 2 says. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the son lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see how the hope and the warning are both there. They're both held out. On this side of the cross it means heralding what Ephesians or Hebrews chapter one says that In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things. The radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, this good news that God has in fact made purification for sins, that Christ has ascended on high, that he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent. Than theirs, Paul proclaimed the kingdom. He proclaimed the kingdom when he said that Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. the proclamation of this kingdom of God to which we are still called. Brothers and sisters, this is the means by which God's plan of redemption still goes forth. It is the only means by which the lost are brought to a saving knowledge of Christ. Your voice as the mouthpiece of the Lord. William Carey, the father of modern missions, he said this, it seems as if many thought the commission was sufficiently put in execution by what the apostles and others have done. It is thus that multitudes sit at ease and give themselves no concern about the far greater part of their fellow sinners who to this day are lost in ignorance and idolatry. There seems to also be an opinion existing in the minds of some that because the apostles were extraordinary officers and have no proper successors, and because many things which were right for them to do would be utterly unwarrantable for us, therefore it may not be immediately binding on us to execute the commission, though it was so upon them. You see what he's saying there. This is not at all the case. This is not at all the case. We speak as ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Next, we see the provision God supplies. Look at verse three. Christ gives them marching orders. He said to them, take nothing for your journey. No staff, nor bread, uh, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Now, church, if you were going on a trip, this is exactly the sort of stuff that you'd pack first. These are the very first things you would reach for. Jesus says, don't do that. Take nothing for your journey. The apostles were to go out in a state of great vulnerability, humanly speaking, not having two shekels to rub together. This must have been terribly frightening to the flesh. Now, what stands behind this injunction? It's really quite simple their trust is to be in God, their trust is to be in the Lord. One author puts it this way, he says, they are instructed to put their faith into action in the crucible of missionary activity. This is one of the great hallmarks of of authentic Christian ministry, total dependence on the Lord all the way down to your daily bread. They weren't to spend their time worrying about tomorrow. They were not to go launching a fundraising campaign, or set up a GoFundMe account online. They weren't to bring a bag. Probably that refers to uh, the kind of bag that peddlers were to bring. There were some uh, philosopher types who would travel around from time to time, from town to town. And uh, they would peddle for money. And there are some accounts that suggest that could actually be a pretty profitable business. That was not the kind of mindset the disciples were to have, thinking either in self-reliant terms, what do I need to have in place to make sure that I can get by while I go out? Or in pragmatic terms, when it, when it comes to the work of the ministry? What do I need to have so that I can build a successful ministry? Jesus warns against that. He calls instead for radical commitment, radical dependence upon him for their daily needs. Now, this is not going to always be the case when it comes to these practical wares. Um, Later toward the end of the book, he's going to actually say almost the exact opposite. In Luke 22, verse 36, there he says, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, likewise a knapsack. Let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. But here, in Luke chapter 9, they are ministering in a Jewish context. It was expected they would be able to find food, lodging. So Jesus says, don't bring any of these things. There's a a brief aside that is called for here in verse 3. You may be aware that where Luke says, take nothing for your journey, no staff, and so on, Uh, the gospel of Mark says that he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. That's Mark chapter 6 and verse 8. So what are we to do uh, with this apparent contradiction There are a couple things to notice. First, some important uh, points of agreement. In both accounts, everything else is held in common. They both include the prohibition against bringing bread, a bag, and money. Uh, Mark says something, though, that is helpful here. He says something that Luke does not include in his account. Mark says, wear sandals. Of course, you're going to need need sandals. Uh, You cannot walk through the countryside going barefoot, so wear sandals. Now, how in the world is that helpful to the question at hand? Well, if you turn over to the next chapter uh, in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 10, you'll find there the commissioning of the 72, a very similar passage to what we're looking at today with one important nuance that I think sheds some light on our passage. If you look at Luke chapter 10 and verse four, listen to what Jesus says to that larger group there, the 72, he says, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. So in Luke chapter nine, contrast the verbs. Luke 9, the verb is take. It's the same thing over in Mark. In Luke chapter 10, it's carry. Mark says wear sandals. Luke chapter 10 says carry no sandals, which raises the the question, why would you carry sandals? Well, you wouldn't. You wear sandals. You don't carry them unless... You're looking at them as a backup. You need a, you're you're thinking to yourself, well, what if these sandals wear out? I better carry a pair of sandals just in case so that I have a spare. Well, that is exactly what Jesus is warning his disciples in Luke chapter nine not to do. He says the same thing with the tunic. Of course you're going to wear a tunic. Don't wear two tunics. Don't bring an extra. So in all likelihood, that's probably what Luke is getting at with the prohibition against the staff. Don't take two tunics. In the same way, don't carry a spare staff, which brings us back to what we said at the beginning. Our trust is to be in the Lord, to, to, to rest in him. There is a way of living Uh, There is a way of going about the work of the ministry that is dependent on man, uh, that looks to pocketbooks and resources and human ingenuity. And then there's the way that he's called us to function, which is to look to him. It is to pray, give us this day our daily bread to ask him for our provision. That includes being content with the provisions and the station that he puts us in, brothers and sisters. Notice what he tells the disciples, whatever house you enter, stay there. And from there, depart. In other words, don't always be moving around. Don't always be trying to find better accommodations. Don't look at the ministry of the word as a means of upward mobility, uh, trying to see how well you can make it out. Whoever welcomes you in, be content. Be content to stay there. Next, we see the possibility of rejection. And wherever they do not receive you, When you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Now, I hope that you have been reminded today of your mission as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you are a disciple maker. If you haven't been reminded that you've been freshly convinced uh, from God's word, having been convinced, we need to be Uh, prepared for the kind of expectations that we should have as we go out into the world. And you can see that here in verse 4. Jesus doesn't want his disciples to be under any kind of false pretense about the kind of reception they're going to have as they go out. It is presumed that there will be some who do not receive you. Remember that, church? Remember that, brothers and sisters? You will go out as ambassadors for Christ, having spent time in prayer, uh, possessing all of the things that we have seen today, the power and authority of the risen Christ. You will be eager, or maybe nervous even, to to speak on his behalf. You will have uh, in your hands the greatest treasure a man can possess the power of god unto salvation and there will be times when you will be rejected there will be times when you will not be received the gospel will be met with unbelief not everyone is going to welcome you. Not everyone is going to say, Thank you. This is exactly what I've been longing to hear. Christ wanted his disciples to understand that. He wanted them to be prepared for that. He said that in many times and many ways. We follow after the pattern of our Lord, despised and rejected by man. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now, what were the disciples to do in that case? Jesus says, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. This is a symbolic gesture. It indicates the removal of what defiles. It's what a Jew would do. Uh, at times, coming home, having uh, traveled through Gentile lands as a gesture of separation, as a gesture of purification. Well, here, that cultural practice is to be used as a witness against those who don't receive Christ, who don't receive the testimony of the kingdom of God. To put it another way, It was like saying, by your rejection of the testimony of Jesus Christ, let it be known that you are cut off from salvation. It was not an act of anger or of malice. It was a witness, just as Christ said. It was a warning. It was a kind of sermon preached via visual aid. Now, think with me, what might that look like today? What might that look like in our context? Obviously that cultural practice is not in practice in our day. So what might that involve in our vernacular? I suggest to you that we are to press home the seriousness of rejecting Christ, seeking by God's grace to impress Upon the heart of listeners, the gravity of their choice. And so when someone says in so many words that they reject Christ or that they don't want to hear what you have to say, you don't just walk away. Uh, You you don't just say fine. But you, you seek with God's help, to press home just how serious the finality of such an act really is in terms of their eternity. You see an example of this in James chapter five. James five, starting in verse one, come now, you rich, weep and howl. For the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you. You hear the same language as the witness there. And will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Church, are those strong words? They are. They are indeed strong words. They're a witness against unbelieving peoples. James is saying all the riches in Christ have been offered to you in the gospel and you're going to choose that which perishes over him. Do you understand where that leaves you? Do you understand what that will mean on the last day when you stand before him? So there is that that possibility of rejection. But brothers and sisters, let that not forestall our efforts. Let that not hamper our ambition for the sake of the gospel. We cannot grow disheartened or discouraged. That, I trust, is one of the reasons Jesus told his apostles of this. But you also see here that there will be those who receive you. There will be those that respond to what you proclaim. That too is implicit in the text. In fact, later in that passage uh, that I mentioned earlier from Luke chapter 22, where Jesus goes on and he says, okay, you can bring the the money bag and the the knapsack and, and all of the rest. He says "Then when I sent you out and you didn't have any of those things, did you lack anything? Their answer, nothing. Nothing. The implication being the gospel did make inroads. There were those the Spirit gave ears to hear and eyes to see. They responded. And so the disciples went. They ministered both to people's spiritual and physical earthly needs. They ministered in both word and deed, and God blessed them as they did, as they relied on his power and his gracious aid. Disciples making disciples. May it be so among us. Now, in the middle of this uh, narrative of the sending out, we have inserted this note about Herod hanging over uh, like a cloud. Verse 7 says, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. Galilee was Herod's purview, and so you expect that he would take an interest in what was happening there. In all likelihood, all that was happening takes into view everything that was happening uh, all the way back from chapter 4 and verse 14, uh, where Jesus begins to teach in their synagogues. He exercises demons. He raises the dead. He heals the sick. A great multitude begins to follow after him. Our text here tells us Herod's perplexed. He's perplexed by it all. Some are saying John's been raised from the dead. This is the first time we, we learn that John the Baptist has been uh, beheaded for his fidelity to the promised Messiah. It's a picture of the opposition and the re- rejection Christ's emissaries have been just ensured is going to take place. Others say Elijah had appeared, others one of the prophets of old. But it's Herod's question here, who is this about whom I hear such things that leaves us with at least a couple questions of our own? ringing in our ears first it prompts us to ask ourselves do we know do we know the answer you have heard the proclamation of the kingdom of god yourself you have heard the good news of jesus christ god's salvation in his son that he has been offered up on the cross as a sacrifice for sin that he was raised on the third day that he ascended on high have you come to trust in him Does your heart say, in response to Herod's question, oh yes, I know who that is. I can tell you who it is that works such wondrous deeds. And then secondly, I think there's a challenge here for us as disciples of Christ. The the challenge is this, as we think about this commission that has been given to us to go make disciples, And speaking to those of you who have a saving relationship with Christ, those who are ambassadors for Jesus, enlisted agents in the kingdom of God. You could put it like this. Is our devotion to the mission of God and the proclamation of Jesus Christ marked by the kind of faithful consistency so that the world is asking, who is this about whom I hear such things? I'm not talking about results. I am not talking about success. I'm talking about faithful proclamation. So that by the power and authority of Christ, the lost are being brought to the point of decision that you see here, whether reception or rejection. Faithful consistency to the proclamation of the kingdom of God. And we know, just as we have seen here today, there will be some, praise God, whose hearts receive him. The oh, Lord, help us in this. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask for your help and what we have just spoken about. Lord, we pray that you would rouse us, God. Rouse us, Lord, to heed the call spoken by Christ and that we would know something of William Carey's fervor and passion to make Christ known. And we pray for help and faithfulness to your mission. We ask, Lord, that Uh, this purpose as uh, ambassadors for Christ, that would be so clearly engraved upon our minds that it would supersede all other worldly duties, that it would inform all of the relationships that we have on earth. Lord, we thank you for those who have brought the gospel to us, who've been faithful to preach good news Lord, most of all, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for our all-sufficient Savior. Thank you for the gospel and for the promise of your word that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts, you raised him from the dead, we will be saved. God, draw the lost to yourself. We plead with you this day. Father, as we come to remember the price that has been paid at your table now to win our souls, this awesome sacrifice that was offered up for us, we ask that you would prepare our hearts, we pray that you would uh, cleanse us of our sin, help us to examine ourselves, to discern the body as we eat and drink that we might do so in a worthy manner, knowing, Lord, that this worthiness isn't something that comes from uh, getting ourselves straight, but by acknowledging our unworthiness, confessing it, being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.